0: Welcome back to the Heinemann Podcast. What does critical reading and critical thinking look like in your classroom? Are students excited, engaged, bored, a little apprehensive? Today, we're joined by two English teachers and authors, Marilyn Prile and Rebecca Odell, to hear about how reading responses can be an approachable and effective tool for helping students engage meaningfully with a text. They advocate for moving away from right or wrong answer thinking and into a space of rich discussion and ideation. If this sounds daunting, Marilyn and Rebecca break it down to show us how accessible it can be. As always, a transcript of this episode can be found at blog.heineman.com.
1: Marilyn, I am so excited to talk to you today because you know that I am a humongous fan of your work and your thinking and, even though I wish we lived actually close to one another, your work lives in my classroom every single solitary day. Um,
2: So thank you for talking with me. I'm so excited. Well, Rebecca, you know that the feeling is mutual, and I respect your work so much, and I know we've collaborated on things, and we we share ideas, and we are like-minded, you know, when it comes to teaching literature to kids and, and critical thinking. And so I'm just so grateful that you are here and we get to have this discussion.
1: So in our classrooms and secondary classrooms critical reading, reading with a critical eye is so important, but it has always felt like something that is easier said than done. How do we Mm -hmm. get kids to actually be able to do that and be able to do it confidently? And so I'm just wondering if we could begin by you sort of painting a picture for us of what critical reading looks like in your classroom.
2: So I think, the first step of just anyone, especially students, reading critically is engagement, right? They have to engage with the text. And that text, of course, can be anything. It can be uh, in print. It can be any kind of genre. It can be visual. It can be audio. Whatever the text is, they have to engage with it in a uh, authentic way, in an authentic way, right? So that they are bringing their real selves to the table and trying to interact with the text from that standpoint, right? So just on a very basic level, that's what it's about, genuine engagement.
1: So that is so exciting for students, probably, because I would imagine that when they get to your class, they have been told that some of those thoughts and feelings and reactions Mm -hmm. are not the quote unquote right answer in English class. So how do you sort of negotiate that that boundary of I want your engagement, I want your genuine reactions versus what students have maybe been told in the past?
2: Right. And this is so true. And, and so you teach seventh grade, I teach 10th grade, right? And by the time they get to us, they've been so, you know, ingrained in this thinking of there's a right answer. There's a wrong answer. You're going to get a grade. You know, this is the currency that they've been raised on. And so they get to us and we, we can't exactly just cancel all of that out. Right. But at the same time, we have to make the students believe that, it's possible to have a safe place to be wrong, right to take intellectual risks with your thinking. So that's tricky because again, they're there they they've they've been raised on this currency of grading and right and wrong answers, right? But we still have to build in that that safe space and that trusting space. So and I know Rebecca we've talked about this for years For me, it's all rooted in reader response theory, right? This idea that you react to a text, you make inferences about the text, you make judgments, you ask questions, all of those things while staying rooted in the text, right? And uh, as a group, the idea is we're all going to sort of bring our ideas together and discuss it and see if we can all get to a better understanding of the text, right? But that process takes a long time to make students believe that number one, they can say what they're really thinking, right? And then number two, it's okay if they're wrong. Uh, They're not going to be penalized for it. They're not going to be, you know, mocked in any way, right? And then number three, that we can all just like discuss it together and, and kind of reach that higher understanding. So There's some, I feel like in my own class, and I'm sure in yours, there's some undoing that has to happen with that, getting them out of that mentality of the right and wrong answer dichotomy, and then some kind of space and trust that needs to be sort of built in. And it takes time.
1: So on one hand, we have to sort of squash that right and wrong thinking On the other hand, we have to build in some critical thinking and critical response, right? I'm thinking about just today. um, My class is reading Persepolis, and they're annotating as they go, and I was pulling kids into reading conferences. And I had one student who is very hesitant, and we're recording this at the end of February. She is still a very timid Um, sharer of her thoughts. She's timid to even share her thoughts with herself, but she had tons and tons of notes about Persepolis. However, they were all reactions. They were, Mm -hmm. oh no, I can't believe that happened. What do you mean? What is she talking about? That's so terrible. So for a student like that, my Finley, (laughs) how Mm -hmm. would you then move those authentic reactions, which she is now having, forward into something um, that's a little bit more critical?
2: Yes. I mean, that's a great question. And I have that in my own class, too. Students that are writing, reading responses, right? And it's just like opinion after opinion after opinion. And they're they're having these thoughts. And of course, they're valid. And they're tying it to the text, right? So all those pieces are in place. Um, because something else that we can circle back to is this idea of, you know, reading reader response theory doesn't mean that like anyone can say anything that pops into their head and it has to be right because that's their interpretation and they're entitled to whatever interpretation they want, right? That's not what it's about. um, Louise Rosenblatt, the the author of of reader response theory talks about responsible reading, right? So there is such a thing of having an interpretation and Uh, It's not, you know, she says some some interpretations are are more responsible, let's say, than others, right? So we have to guide students to these deeper levels of thinking. And that's where the discussion comes in. So whether that's a small group in your class, whether as you were describing, it's your reading conference one-on-one with the student, right? And it sounds like your student is being a responsible reader. She's just constantly in this one sort of mode, right? Right. So I would say to help deepen and like kind of steer her into a critical, a more critical stance would be obviously to ask her, you know, you could ask directly, um, especially if she has an opinion about, let's say a character trait or something like that. You could ask her like a leading question to make more inferences, or how do you think this, this character trait is eventually gonna affect the plot? You know, things that we always do as English teachers another thing that you could do and i know rebecca in your classroom you use the reading response categories right maybe steer her towards a group of categories to choose from that gets at that deeper more critical thinking that's another way and then if she if she's discussing in small groups you know a lot of times i see students just naturally approach this deeper level of thinking or go into wade into these other categories when they see their group members doing it as well. I would recommend that. But what what did you say to Finley?
1: <laughs> well, I really, I noted what she was doing. And I said, Finley, I notice that most of these annotations are really emotional reactions to the text. And so I'm wondering why you think that you're having such an emotional sort of reactionary mm-hmm. response. What is it about this
2: story or these characters? And so we talked about yeah. that. That's wonderful. And I would even in that discussion add, you know, okay, depending on her, reans- her answer, say, do, you know, do you, do you realize you're getting into this category, you know, or that category? You're, you're explaining your reactions, but also really you're doing maybe a class critique or something like that. You know, sometimes it's a matter of giving the students the vocabulary, the academic vocabulary to name what they're doing. And then once they're kind of like, oh, that is what I'm doing, you know, then they'll be more um, maybe comfortable or confident to, to kind of uh, go into those spaces themselves. So you mentioned the reading response
1: categories, which are just about my favorite thing that has ever happened, um, to literature study in my classroom. Would you tell us a little bit about what are these categories? What are we talking about here? What do you do with them?
2: In my mind, the categories are a way to, so if we're starting from this idea of reader response theory where you bring your real self to the text and then you go from there, right? there's a lot of directions that you could go in, right? So for me, the categories are just pathways into critical thinking, right? So a student isn't completely overwhelmed. So you know from, and I know you you work with my book, Reading With Presence, there's about 30 categories in there and they're all just like entryways into a text. Um, so about character or setting or theme, um, but then more difficult ones get into archetypes and things like that and, and working all the way up to some of the more um, sophisticated criticisms, right? So when we give students, number one, options of entering a text, and then number two, the, the specific sort of doorways that are these options, that really uh, helps scaffold this idea of, okay, I'm approaching a text what do I wanna say? How do I wanna to react to it? So that's what I mean by that categories.
1: So what are kids doing with these categories in your class? Is this just something that they are mentally processing? as they're reading? Is there a product that comes out of this? How do they actually function inside the minutes of your
2: class period? So what we do in class is we'll read a text and again I'm in 10th grade so I can even just assign this for homework I'll say read a certain number of pages come in with one or two reading responses written and they they'll know what that means and basically it's that they they're, they're going to read the text they're going to choose one of these categories they're going to write five or six sentences within the category and then they're going to attach a quote to it. So in this way I know we come in the next day to class and Every student sitting there, if they've done their homework, has a thought about the text. They've metacognitively categorized that thought, and they have a quote to back it up. So that this is how our discussions are structured every day, and it just makes for um, such a wonderful discussion. Now they are, they are constantly writing. So every day in my class, they're they're practicing these reading responses, and they're writing, you know, their six sentences. Um, but what does start to happen, because I know in your question, you just said, is it a mental process? After a couple months of doing these, the students can't help but think in the categories, right? So they tell me later, like, oh, I was just reading something for fun and I found the categories going through my head. They start kind of critiquing whatever they're reading through the lens of um, these categories, you know, these metacognitive kind of functions. And so maybe it's about mood or tone or author bias or whatever the categories are, they they really start to internalize them. So that's just a wonderful part of the system.
1: So you talked about how one of the great things is that kids are metacognitively categorizing their thought. Why is that so important for students as they move forward in their English academic career, or really even just as a writer, like
2: why do they need to have these labels to put on the thoughts? How does that help them? Well, I think this goes back to the original question, right? Of what does it mean to be a critical reader and a critical thinking, uh, thinker, right? So it's not just that you're Having thoughts, you're aware that you're having thoughts and you're able to label what those thoughts are, right? So, as teachers, we know that metacognition is just one of the most important skills that we can send kids through the grades with. And uh, this is one way to practice it. You know, the more that they can label their thinking, the more they can be aware of exactly what they're reacting to and how they're reacting to it. And again, this this is exactly what defines, you know, the critical reader. So when most people read, you've got a million thoughts kind of passing through your head, but be able to to be able to grab one, pause, freeze it for a moment, label it metacognitively of what thought, you know, that kind of practice really slows down the mind and gives students the tools to reach these higher levels of critical thinking.
1: You know, something I tell my students is that each of these categories is a way that we look at a piece of literature. And so when they move on to their next class or their next school and their teacher maybe just says, hey, read this for homework and come prepared to discuss Mm -hmm. And they have no idea what that means. What am I supposed to discuss? These are the things that we're discussing, right? These see the setting and character traits and contrasts and all of these different reading response categories are really that English class magic Mm -hmm. that kids sometimes think that some of them are born with and some of them are not. Just broken down and made clear for everybody. You know, this is what you're discussing. This is what you're writing about. Even if you're a
2: college English major, it's these things. That's exactly it. And, you know, that's what sort of started this whole system for me. I can remember being a student and I was just petrified of opening my mouth. I was scared of saying the wrong answer. And whenever a teacher would say, you know, something like, oh, what does this poem mean? You think that they're asking for the meaning of life. And like, we're just going to let the really smart English kid answer it. Right. And I remember one time in particular being called on in class. And this was like in college. Right. This was I wasn't young. And I I just couldn't, I was too scared to answer even there. And I said, I don't know. And the teacher kind of pressed me and was like, well, you've got to have a thought like you've got, and I just sort of kept saying, I I don't know. I, I really, it was, it was a difficult piece, whatever, got out of it. And then the teacher called on another person and that person just talked about like, the main simile and the first couple of lines and the teacher thought that was great. And in my mind, I was like, well, I could have said that, you know, I, I feel like students think that we're asking for the meaning of life, right? When really we're just like, give me something, give me one bit of this that you understood and you have a thought about, right? And we can go from there, right? We'll work together. We'll build off that. This is what a discussion is, right? So this, again, this goes back to that idea of what does it mean to be a critical reader and what does it mean, you know, when we talk about reader response theory, bringing your true self to the table. It means this, it, it means you try, you might be wrong, but this discussion is going to help shape your thinking and make it better, right? Um, but without those those categories or that scaffold, students are scared. And also they, they don't have the vocabulary to enter into a text, right? So um, I, I feel like breaking it down has really helped and i think it's very empowering for students yes. in the in the way that
1: you just described when they see that oh i was kind of noticing that thing and now there's a whole reading response i can write about it that really validates the thinking that they already have yes how do you introduce this when you get a new crop of students how do you create that safe environment that says just try this. It's okay if it's weird.
2: It's okay if you feel like you failed. Well, I kind of talk exactly like that in the beginning of, of the school year. I say, "This is we're going to do this system and I kind of show them the categories and I resist indoctrinating them with like a bunch of examples. You know, I might show them one or two, but really that kind of defeats the purpose because then I'm setting up like what looks right and what looks wrong. Right? So Um, I kind of explain it to them, but even then it takes several weeks for them to really believe that they're not going to lose points, you know, or they can be wrong. Or a lot of times the students will write really long reading responses um, that are mostly summarizing because this is what they've been taught to do. And they want to make sure they get it right. And then as time goes on, for some students, the reading responses will become shorter, still fulfilling, you know, the five or six sentence requirement, but they'll become more concise and the language and thinking will just become better. And it'll just be less, you know, over summarizing and more just their true critical thinking. So it takes time. I mean, I'm sure that's the same in your class too. Do you find that it takes a couple of weeks for them to kind of believe you? a couple of weeks to believe and definitely, you know,
1: a couple of months to walk through this process together regularly um, until it gets good. You know, it's sort of oh, like gosh. any class discussion where you have to have a handful of terrible class discussions before you have that eureka moment. Mm-hmm. And I find it's the same with the reading responses. You're right. They do start out long. And mm-hmm. I think that the five to six sentences at first I resisted that Marilyn at first I was like no I do not like to tell my students how many sentences to write but here's the brilliance of it at least for my kids five to six sentences is so approachable they've Mm -hmm. been doing that since like third or fourth grade so when you say five or six sentences they're like their guard is put down a little bit they're like oh I I could do that right but five to six really good sentences is not. So, you know, with the summary thing, what I actually have started doing is when kids get stuck in that summary zone and maybe only the last sentence is really on target with the category, I start having them write a second paragraph and the first five to six sentences is summary and then you're done. And then they kind of need that ramp up into the actual critical response. And then over time
2: we start to delete (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that first paragraph of summary it's so true and, and and it's almost like a security blanket again because we've taught them to do this and and also summarizing is important i don't want to you know say we should stop summarizing but we've taught them that, but that's all that they, a lot of times that's all they can do, right? And they're scared to really put that lens, that additional layer rather of their own critical thought, right? And so really helping them transition. And then the other beautiful thing is they get to know the difference, right? So my 10th graders just handed in their Um, Reading response analysis paper. So after semester one, I have them write a whole reflection paper on how have your RRs changed over the semester and what kind of a reader are you based on the categories that you like, things like that. And they'll write about, you know, I used to summarize so much and now it's so much more concise. Or some kids have the opposite um, issue where they couldn't think of anything to say, but now they're reading and the categories are popping up in their head. So they just, they immediately have ideas. They have to choose from which idea they want to write about, right? So they're able to see the difference between summarizing and critical thinking and personal response, right? So that's a huge victory as well, because for them, in the beginning of the year, they think responding to a text is summarizing it, right? And and they don't, if you ask them what critical thinking was, I don't know that they could even verbalize that.
1: No, that is huge. I used to teach seniors um, mm-hmm. and I wasn't using reading responses at the time. I don't think your book had come out yet, but when I was teaching seniors and these were IB seniors, our highest level of senior English, most of my year was spent trying to teach them what summary looked like. So that they would stop summarizing. But I think in reading responses, one of the most one of the most powerful things. I've said that 20 times because it's all so powerful to me, is that last question on almost every reading response category, you have some kind of question about significance. Why does this mm-hmm. matter to the text? Why is this character trait significant? Why what is the author saying through this? Through the setting um, or whatever it may be and i think that also when they get into that habit of i'm addressing the category i'm thinking through some questions and the last thing i write every time i do a reading response is why does this matter why is it significant why do we care it builds this habit of analysis that they don't even realize they're getting
2: And that's it. And that's the critical reading right there, right? So again, they get to seventh grade, they get to 10th grade, they can identify characters and character traits, they can identify setting, they can point to the sentence, but then why, right? What is the author doing? And so this gets into the author's intentions and the deeper meanings and themes and symbolism and things like that. And that's what we want students to always be doing, not just identifying literary elements, which, again, they get really good at that in the elementary grades and the middle school grades, but then applying that and really asking these deeper questions.
1: Yes, not just seek and find of literary elements, which is what they kind of come with often. So, Marilyn, there are these 30-plus categories in reading with presence How do you introduce those categories to students in a way that they don't feel overwhelmed? I know that you're setting up this environment where their thoughts are valid and valued and they're not going to be penalized for being quote unquote wrong, but 33 things to think about when you're reading is a lot. So how do you parse these out? Do you give them to them all at once? How does that introduction process go in those early days?
2: That's a great question. And then one that I talk with other teachers about a lot, because it really, the answer for everyone is going to be, it depends on your class and it depends on your grade level and it depends on your students. So for me, I have 10th graders and by the time they get to me, they're pretty good at, you know, the traditional literary analysis, right? So Uh, But even so, I don't hit them with like 35 categories at once, just because the process is still new. Again, the process of learning to trust and all like we were talking about before, that's still new. So I'll probably give them in the very beginning of the year, just about 15 categories. Those are the more traditional categories about character setting, mood, tone, theme, symbolism, things like that. And and I'll just, and they feel pretty confident in those areas. Also, you know, ask a question, give an opinion, make a connection, all of those. Letting them start small um, helps build their confidence, helps get the technique down, right? Because it is a habit. That's another thing. It's it's a system, right? They're writing these reading responses constantly, three or four times a week, usually in my class, right? So getting the system down, getting the method down. And then after about a quarter, I'll introduce the other categories. And most of them, again, 10th graders, they are ready to take off into those more difficult categories. They've spent years doing the traditional foundational stuff. So the thought of being able to write psychoanalytical criticism, that's just like thrilling to them, right? So um, a lot of them will kind of take right off into those. So I organize mine in like an easier batch and a more challenging batch of categories. And so I kind of scaffold them that way. But I've talked to lots of other teachers who do it in different ways. You know, in general, you're progressing from something a little easier, something more familiar into something more challenging, right? That's what we do as teachers. But there are different ways to group the category. So it would depend on what your content is, what your your end goals are for the class. you know, I talk a lot about uh, you can create any category that you want and and you simply just have to ask yourself, what do I want the students to notice? What space do I want to create for students to think in, right? as it like an invitation, like a space that exists that they can step into and think in. So with those questions, individual teachers can kind of, arrange their own batches of categories. In general, though, I would recommend, you know, 15, whatever the categories are, start off with a group of about 15, and then maybe every quarter add more. Now, some some uh, classes, you might start with a group of five, right? It might that the choice might be that small if that's what your students can handle without getting overwhelmed. However, I, I, the only like hard and fast recommendation is that they must always have a choice. So I never assign a certain category, whatever batch of categories I assign, there, there's always choice within that batch. That's an integral part of the process.
1: I introduce them one or two at a time, actually. Mm-hmm. My, so my students come to me with the foundational ones from sixth grade. Yep. And then when I get them in seventh grade, we add them, you know, kind of piecemeal as mini lessons mm-hmm. almost throughout the year. And then we're just adding to this running list and I loop with my students. So by the time they leave eighth grade, they've got 35, 40, 45, depending on how many I've added, which is something I want to point out again, I know you've just said it, but what I love about your system, which I love about any great system, is that it gives us a firm foundation that we can lean on as long as we need it, Mm -hmm. but it's flexible. And when you are... Sitting in your classroom and thinking, oh gosh, I just really need my kids to not just be able to think about symbols, but think about systems of motifs. Right. You can invent a category. Motif Master was born or I need my kids to be able to use motifs to identify themes. Then I made up the category motif to theme and a new category was born. Um, right. So I love that you have given us so much that we don't have to come up with anything if we don't want to, but when we need to as teachers, when we are ready to move on, it's a system that can embrace whatever our classroom is throwing at us at the moment. Speaking of something our students throw at us a lot in English class are those students who read a text and say, "Uh, I don't see anything. I didn't really have any thoughts when I was reading this. I looked. No thoughts landed on me. I'm so sorry. Um, So for the kids who don't sort of automatically connect with the categories, how do you move those
2: students along, the ones who don't see anything at all? Right. And... You know, I think, first of all, that's a result of just years in the system of this right and wrong answer thinking. They just tune out. They convince that, they're convinced that nothing they think about the text is going to be right or interesting or worthwhile sharing. So they get into this mode and they just tune out, right? Because I, I don't think that's a normal... Um, I mean, I think that as you read, you are having reactions, right? So they're saying, oh, I don't see anything, but really uh they they've just kind of spent years just sort of thinking that they don't have anything interesting to share. So from that standpoint, I might go over, you know, show them the categories and just kind of say like, well, what about this? What about that? Or what did you think? Or um we could talk to them about what their favorite book was ever or what their favorite movie is or what their favorite video game is and what is it that you like about it. And so then as we're listening, you know, we could identify the category that they're talking about, right? And then maybe steer them towards that, help them apply it to the text in the class. And again, these are all things that we do as English teachers, right? We're constantly making these kind of nudging students in this way and making these connections. Um, I definitely have had students that Kind of refused to write an RR for like weeks. Weeks would go by, and we would uh, we would have these discussions. And I would talk about it, and I would reassure them. You know, I promise you, if you have your quote, if you have a thought, like you're going to get full credit on this. I I know that you're thinking about this, and then you know, one day the day will come by uh, where they just they actually do have a thought, right? And maybe I sit there and like help them kind of get it into sentence form or whatever, but there's usually a turning point. And it's not this like miraculous, all of a sudden they write everything perfectly, but it's a breakthrough, right? And that's what the, the reading response system has space for, for these types of moments, right? And that you can invite kids into again and again and again. Whereas, you know, the whole comprehension question, right and wrong answer situation. That's what turned them off in the first place, right? That's what has brought them to our classroom with this like all or nothing thinking, right? So it doesn't happen instantly for some kids, but just talking to them, reassuring them, using the existing categories to kind of engage them, right? With, if not the text at hand, then maybe some of their other favorite sort of texts,
1: I think talk is such an important point that you brought up because I know that you use these in class discussions, Mm -hmm. but in that example, you were talking about more individualized conversations. And I find that for kids who are struggling, usually kids aren't struggling with this. They're struggling against this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know,
2: they're
1: they're just sort of like fighting because they can't believe it's this easy or they just Mm -hmm. don't want to put it down into words. Um, You know, I right now I have eighth graders teaching the fifth graders who are going to come up to middle school next year about reading responses. We're trying to impress some middle school magic upon them, but they're just talking it out. The eighth graders are teaching them a category and then they're just having a conversation instead of writing anything at all. Or sometimes even when I'm absent, I've done this or when I just really Feel like I want to connect with the kids in a different way. Instead of having them write their reading response, I'll ask them to use a voice recorder and record it, or come tell me your reading response today instead of writing it. They love that,
2: right?
1: (laughs) So I think that there are lots of ways that we could partner kids or offer them recording as an option um, to scaffold them into that five or six sentences if that part is still hard or scary or intimidating.
2: So wonderful.
1: What about for the kid for whom it's not intimidating? What about that kid who walks into your classroom and they've been secretly writing reading responses in their sleep for years? You know, this is pretty easy work for them. Even those harder categories, they, yes, they get it. They can try it. They can be successful at it. How do we build past these five or six sentence reading responses. What comes
2: next? So I find with my 10th graders, the ones who are just really strong writers or it comes easily to them and they love the most difficult categories, they don't get bored because, again, they're completely in control of it, right? So they, they're they the ones coming up with an idea and they'll tell me, like, I couldn't wait to share this with my group. I knew what my group was going to think when I came in with this, you know? So they're very engaged with the process. So the differentiation itself helps it work for everyone. Yeah. Exactly. And it's built in and and the discussion within their small groups are always, you know, so great and so engaging. So I've never found that the kids for whom writing and thinking comes easily, I've I've never really found that they get bored or they don't want to do it, if anything, they want to it's the space for them to really like let loose, right? So there's that, but but to answer your question in another way too, I've been thinking on my own of how can we take this system to the next level? And especially in recent times, you know, where we are in the world with so much misinformation and disinformation out there, how can we use English class to better equip our students to be critical thinkers out in the world. So, and and what I found as I, I've started to kind of talk to my students about this is they compartmentalize things. Like we have English class and that's where we learn about literature and character and setting and all of that. And they get really good at that. But then when you ask them, what does it mean to be a critical thinker in the world? Like when you go home and look at your phone or when you go home and look at your television screen or whatever it is. And like, they don't really know, they don't necessarily make that connection. And I know in school, we're trying to make that connection with media literacy classes and things like that. But I feel like even some of that sometimes get compartmentalized, because it's not that system, that practice, that ongoing practice of what is this? What am I reading? What am I thinking? That kind of a thing. So I've started to move in the direction of, well, I ask myself, what do critical readers do, right? And And we might do it, well, we probably do do it even subconsciously, right? You see a text and your brain is already thinking, what is this text, right? Like what genre, what what medium is it in? What is it telling me, but what is it hiding, right? How does it work? And then like, how am I reacting? Like these are the questions that we're we're always sort of thinking about, but it, it doesn't mean that our students are doing that as well. You know, there's this stream of information that's just coming at them. And my fear is that they're just like taking it all in, right, without having these these the space to kind of ask something like, what is this really? Or who made this? Or where is it coming from? Or is it hiding something from me? And what is it hiding? So my latest thinking ar- around reading responses has been to formulate categories and group these categories into these, these critical questions.
1: So- With these critical questions, are students examining their whole class novel or are they examining, you know, that I was going to say
2: Facebook, but they don't look at Facebook. (laughs) No, Facebook is for old people, they tell me. (laughs) Are
1: are students using these new categories to think about their whole class novel or are they thinking about TikTok videos and um, ads they see on television? What, What sort of texts are we talking about?
2: Right. That this is it, right? So ideally both, right? And, and so what they see in real life is where I really want them to start applying these skills. But what I've noticed since I've introduced some of these new categories like author bias or emotional appeal, right? Or recognizing my own reaction, or am I feeling uh, like I want to take action after reading something that I've read? So normally you would think, okay, that would be more about contemporary media, articles online, videos on YouTube, that kind of a thing. But they've actually started to apply them to, you know, the classical texts that we're reading in class. You know, someone wrote one this week that was like, Author bias of Homer, right? And I was like, oh, yep, that is true, right? So, and this, I found this with the original reading response categories as well. They apply them in ways that are surprising, right? Rebecca, do you see that with the, your students? Absolutely. In fact, some
1: of my eighth graders who have been doing this with me for two years now have started creating their own combos, yes, and putting together two reading responses in interesting ways, and so. Yep. We had one the other day that was spot the setting and character development, which is one I think I made up. And I wasn't really sure where they were going with it. And then it turned into this brilliant thing about how this characters move with his family is what perpetuated this change in a trait. And I was like, oh my gosh, so now my kids are in a competition with each other. We have a Google doc Uh and they they put the combos that they've made together. And then in addition to your categories and my categories, Mm -hmm. they can choose from the combo categories, but they do, they absolutely start to see these in sort of outside of the box ways that I didn't even predict. Which shows us that they're really critically thinking, right?
2: Yes, this is it. That's exactly it. And I found that too. They would start to, they started to invent their own categories and they started to combine them. And when I would talk to them about it, they'd say, I don't know if this is the right category, but it wasn't exactly this one. It wasn't exactly the other one. So I had to combine it. And that, that right there is what I'm after, that metacognitive you know, playing with thought, labeling your thought, even creating like the combo as you were saying. And those discussions are so wonderful. And it, it's not about the right or wrong answer, it's about the thinking that the student has done. Right. So I love that. And I do find that whatever categories I give them, including these newer sort of critical thinking ones, they'll they'll just apply it to anything that they think might work with it, you know, and it just shows how. Their brains work in so many different ways, in differentiated ways, in creative ways. And this is what we should be making space for in our classrooms, right? Opening things up instead of limiting them.
1: So we've talked about this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you have anything else to say just about the ways that either in the old categories or the new categories or just reading response kind of thinking benefits kids beyond the English classroom. I can think of a zillion ways that it benefits us in English, but why is this so important for them as people moving on?
2: Well, so I'll give you an example of something that just happened a, a couple months ago as I was experimenting with these newer categories. Um, and one of them is called seeing the source. So see the source. And it's it kind of prompt kind of addresses, maybe you're online reading something and you realize that this article came from somewhere that is funding it or it came from somewhere that there might be another motive for for having this article on their site, right? It might be good, might be bad. It's not that everything's, you know, out to trick you or get you, but just what's the source, right? And I had a 12th grader and I don't teach 12th graders, but sometimes I'll run, I'll practice these categories with some of my former students. And I said, can you just sort of, you know, look at this site? I gave her a choice of sites. And I said, just think about these categories and the seeing the source was one of them. And that's what she decided to write about. And she sent me this RR and it was amazing. And she had really sort of traced this one article and, and researched what the website was and what the organization was. And afterwards in my classroom, she said, you know, I have never... Had this thought before. It never occurred to me that something on a website is coming from an organization that has um, a motive. And I was thinking to myself, you know, here's a 12th grader. This girl has been through 12 years of really solid, exceptional public education, right? And she's just realizing this now. And, and you know, I, I I guess we take it for granted that naturally they're noticing these things and asking these questions, but they aren't necessarily doing that. They're they're compartmentalizing, which is what I was saying before. You know, English class is English class, and they'll excel in that, but they're not really transferring these skills habitually to the texts that they're seeing um, online. Another category that I really love to think about, and I've had students start to write in it, is one called "map the algorithm." So you watch a video, let's say on YouTube or whatever, and then they queue up. 10 more videos that you might like, right? So I want students to stop and like, look at that cue. And what is the website saying about, what does it think about you? What is it assuming about you, you know? And so the kids really enjoy that one, right? And, and, and again, they might fleetingly have this thought of like, oh, the algorithm's leading me here. But to create the space to really write it out in those five or six or more sentences, just that that's what really shifts their thinking and deepens their thinking.
1: And I love what you said, habitualizing it, yes. making it a habit. Right. So, Marilyn, if teachers are intrigued and excited about this work, what are some ways that teachers could get
2: started in their own classrooms? The reading with presence is is out there still, of course. I do have, if you go on my website, marilynprile.com, I do have kind of a free reading response starter pack, I call it, which are just some of those preliminary categories. And that's really all you need. And you can, again, create your own categories. It doesn't take much to get started with it. Um, You don't need a bunch of handouts or anything like that. It's, again, just this, this system that is clear and simple. And you just kind of let the kids try it out for a while and, and you'll instantly kind of see the the level of engagement that it brings and you'll want to, to go from there. So I would say that's probably a good place to start. I think that is an excellent place
1: to start. Those free resources are very generous that are on your website. I've pointed okay. many people in that yeah. direction and reading with presence literally lives on my desk (laughs) it does not move it just stays there great marilyn thank you so much for your time and for the influence that your work has had on my students
2: i've loved talking to you today rebecca you are welcome and thank you for being such a wonderful partner in this and for all of your excitement about reading responses i know you're doing amazing things in the classroom so i really enjoyed this conversation
0: our thanks to marilyn and rebecca for their time today You can learn more about their work or find their most recent books, Reading with Presence, and A Teacher's Guide to Mentor Texts, as well as numerous other titles, at Heinemann.com. Copyright Heinemann Publishing.